Hey, y'all. I'm Sam Sanders from NPR. It's been a minute. It's Tuesday, which means I have a conversation for you. I am chatting with Amber Tamblin, the actress and writer. You might know Amber from the TV show Joan of Arcadia or from the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants movies. But these days, she is best known as one of the founders of Hollywood's Time's Up movement. Time's Up is this group that was founded in response to the Me Too movement to support and advocate for victims of sexual harassment and assault in the workplace, specifically for victims who might not have the resources or privilege to do so on their own. So besides that work, Amber Tamlin is also out with her first novel. It's called Any Man. And it is a book that dovetails with her work in the Me Too movement. A warning for our listeners, this book deals with sexual assault, and this entire conversation about her book deals also with that topic. So the book, called Any Man, it's about a serial rapist who is a woman uh, raping men. And the framing of this book, it totally flips the reader's perceptions of sexual assault on their head. It made me question a lot of the assumptions I make about victims of sexual assault. It made me question the way that we as a society talk about sexual assault uh, and also how I'm helping or hurting our national conversation on the issue. So besides that chat about the book and the themes there, you will also hear Amber talk about how the Me Too movement has affected men close to her. One is Quentin Tarantino, the movie director. Uh, She's been working with him and kind of counseling him on his role in the Me Too movement. The other man is her husband, comedian David Cross, who has had his own Me Too moment recently. Okay, this is a heavy conversation, but I really think it's worth it. Here's me at NPR West talking with Amber Tamblin. She was in New York. Enjoy. So you start acting when you're 11, which mm-hmm. makes me believe, and I think I read, that you are from L.A. Yes. <laughs> Where in LA? Okay, whereabouts? Venice. Really? Yeah. Venice and Santa Monica. Okay. I went to um, Santa Monica High School and... Actually, I'm third generation Angelino. Both my parents were born and raised there, and both that, my grandparents. That never happens. No, it never <laughs> happens. I think I've met one other person. Yeah. Do you live in in uh, West LA now? Where where you live? No, I live in New York. I live in Brooklyn. Oh, nice. Yeah, I left uh, I left LA about ten years ago um, and moved here. And uh, I had a house in Venice um, that I owned for the last ten years up until this last December when I sold it. <gasps> Wow. So it's like the first time I've ever not had a permanent residence in L.A. It feels really weird. Do you miss it? I don't because I go there all the time. I was just there last week. And uh, my parents still live in the same apartment building where I was born and raised. Um, and I all hope my it's na- rent controlled. <laughs> it is. Well, they own it. They <laughs> okay, bought, I, I don't want to tell you what they bought it for because it was rent controlled. <laughs> yeah. Make you sob. It yeah. made me sob. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so it still feels very much like a small town to me. Yeah. I have read that your upbringing was bohemian. Um, yes. Your parents are creatives. You, uh, who were your honorary godparents? Dennis <laughs> Hopper and who else? Dennis Hopper, Neil Young, um, Dean Stockwell. Um, a lot of poets up in San Francisco, Jack Hirschman, Michael McClure, a lot of the men from the um, uh, sort of the this the '60s movement, the uh, seminal culture movement, and huh. and the beat movement. What was that like to grow up as I don't know, not pejoratively, but like to grow up as a hippie? Yeah, I I don't know. I think it was very nurturing. I think it was also. Um, you know, gave me a lot of issues later on in my life as far as boundaries. How so? Um, just in the sense of letting people take advantage of me or of not really knowing how to um, 
find my own self-worth in, in a world where I grew up around such um, big voices and personalities. Hmm. Um, but it was also very nurturing. I mean, there was always like a bonfire going with music being played <laughs> and tons of alcohol and pot being smoked. And, you know, I was being bounced around on different knees and poets reading around the campfire. And there just was a lot of that. I grew up around it. And it, it's really informed, I think, um, who I am as an artist and uh, is one of the reasons why I, I don't think I ever had an issue calling myself a poet, e- even in the face of people going, this is a terrible plan hmm. to have poetry be your hobby and be an actress. Please don't do that. <laughs> why would they say um, it was terrible? Well, I just I grew up with people not um, respecting my writing or my work and also s- always seeing me as an actress first, huh. as seeing me as a sort of like fluffy you know, pop TV uh, personality actress um, who does sisterhood and, you know, uh, did Joan of Arcadia about the girl who talks to God. And while those are all like wonderful TV shows and I'm very, very proud of them and General Hospital, you know, Um, I think that that made it very hard for me as an artist and as a writer um, to be taken seriously for a very, very long time. Do you think you're taken seriously as a writer now? Oh, I know I am. Yeah, that's a good answer. <laughs> I, I just finished reading your book yesterday. Oh, okay. I think my first question for you would be, how would you describe the book? Like, what style of writing is it? Because there's a lot going on. Like, some of it is poetry. Some of it is prose. Some of the chapters are just, like, this narration and monologue. There's one chapter of only tweets. Like, what is the name for this style of writing? I don't know if there is a name. I still would say it falls under fiction. For sure. Um, uh, you know, I think that, that fiction is a very broad term and many different things can fall under that umbrella. Um, and for me, I think that the text as a whole is one large um, macro poem mm. uh, that I think r- touches on um, the many different ways in which we uh, connect from the world and are also isolated from the world. So we should tell our listeners, uh, some who may not have read the book, what the central premise of it is. It's quite a simple premise, but as soon as you realize the book's about that, it just like, <laughs> it's a gut punch the entire time. Yeah, I had an interviewer recently say to me, so this book really hurt my feelings <laughs> yeah. as a reporter. Yeah. Um, so the book follows... Um, several male survivors who are all uh, pretty violently attacked by a female serial rapist. And um, this happens over the course of two years, and um, you never really uh, meet the woman um, who does the attacking. She goes by the name of Maud, and she sort of becomes almost a haunting in the book, a sort of apparition that mm-hmm. um, that, that haunts their memories and, and also sort of the larger zeitgeist uh, uh, brain of the entire country. Yeah. So the book really, it, it looks, it has... To me, it has many conversations at once. Um, it aims to uh, degender the conversation around sexual assault and sexual violence, um, while also, I think, resensitizing us as a culture uh, to what the culture of, of rape culture actually is and what it means and how it manifests. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's so interesting. Like when I started reading the book, I kind of was like in the back of my head saying, well, you shouldn't have to write in the voice of men getting raped to make people think about rape and sexual assault and take it seriously. We should all just get it. 
But I found myself as a man reaching some parts of the book and saying to myself, I've never thought about sexual assault in this way. I've never taken it this seriously. And I think a large part of why your book hit me that hard is because men were the victims. And yeah. it's like I hate to admit that the conceit is right and, and, and is needed. But there are a lot of people out there that probably will never think about sexual assault as something real until they think it could happen to their male bodies. Yeah, I really agree with you. And I think, you know, one of the great hopes for me with this book is that it it does exactly that and it reframes, um, you know, the stereotypes of what victims and survivors of sexual assault go through and why people wait 10 to 20 to 30 years to ever come out and say anything and what it feels like to hear um, that you probably deserved it because of what you were wearing. And in this case, you know, the, the men are being questioned and saying, well, how is it possible For to a man to raped? be raped, yeah. So there's, you know, there, there are these really humiliating hurdles that that women and some men are put through who are who are survivors of sexual assault. And uh, I wanted to, to not only show that, but to really indict uh, the media, the culture we live in, social media in specific, um, and, and really hold it up as a lens and say, are you really helping? Are mm. you really, are, are you part of the solution or are you part of the problem? Are, have you done your work just because you re- retweet something you agree with? Is that is that all it's mm-hmm. worth? Is that all you have to give? Yeah. You know, there, there are a lot of moments in the book where you're in the heads of these male victims where the grief they're feeling, the confusion they're feeling, the anger and torment they're feeling, it was just made so visceral and so real and so clear. Mm-hmm. And I actually want to read a passage. Um, oh, great. One of the characters is, you know, talking about how you kind of go on after this kind of sexual assault. Um, and the graph reads, how can you go on living when you're now being lived in? When you've been invaded, how can you tell a joke and enjoy laughter without hearing the one laugh that owns every root in you now? How can you accept air into your lungs from the very perennials whose life you've taken? How can you forgive the person, the woman who raped you, who has no face to forgive, who has no intention to understand, who is nowhere forever and everywhere inside you for eternity? How can you forgive yourself? How can you enjoy the trees and not plead continuous guilt to them? How can you end your own suffering without ending completely? How can you accept touch or walk through your life a lived wound, forever avoiding some terrible, inevitable wind? That was so powerful. (laughs) Where was that coming from? I like there, there were moments where I said, this is like coming from deep inside of you. Yeah, I think that there. I think there's a lot for me. Um, as I think that there are for for most women, whether or not you have experienced uh, some form of sexual violence. To me, you know, these questions that that character you just read, Paro Sullivan, um, you know, he is really somebody who is not particularly emotionally forthcoming, and he's having a hard time. Uh, he's had a hard time grappling with what happened to him. Um, and it takes him years and years of uh, therapy. And also, you know, he's a like a sort of failed comedian. So a lot of his way of being able to express himself is through jokes, inappropriate jokes, mm-hmm. um, which to me as a writer is is 
one of the most um, healthy ways that I know how to get through um, painful experiences is to try and make myself laugh um, because life can be so cruel and sometimes there's no other uh, way for you to feel any um, uh, catharsis without that laughter. And so in this moment, it's it's many years later and he's sort of just really looking back at these questions of how he got to where he is and how you go on. Yeah. Well, and what I found so resonant with that portion of the book is that he is just underscoring how overwhelming a sexual assault and the aftermath of it can be for like your entire body, for your entire life, for every part of your day. You can't compartmentalize it. Yeah. And I think these men don't get to know her. That's the worst part. Yeah. They don't get to know why she did it. They don't even know what she looks like. They can't even identify her. They are just completely haunted by her. And I think that that's the real experience of um, sexual assault survivors. Man, woman, doesn't matter the gender again or the race. I think there's an experience of um, you you have been so othered from yourself. You are so removed. And you never really get to understand uh, why a person would do that. And for me, the, the, a way to, to personify that and, and to sort of metaphorically show that with this book was by not letting the reader have her, not letting hmm. the reader have the opportunity to have an answer and to know why. And in that way, the reader is forced to examine and look at what they are projecting onto the page when they they themselves feel like someone deserved it or feeling guilty or happy or no matter what their emotions are because there's not anyone that they can point to and blame. How unique is that experience of not having someone to blame? How unique is that for people that experience sexual assault in the real world? I mean, because a lot of people know the perpetrator well i think even the people who do know who did it don't know why Hmm. to a certain extent because Hmm. we have to remember that sexual violence sexual assault is not about sex it's about power and power has so much to do with the id and the mind and what someone is trying to hold over someone else and and for the most part meaning you don't really get an answer no one says to you here's the reason why I did it. You know, mm. <laughs> you don't get that. And, mm. and and the other side of that is, again, because uh, rape and sexual assault are so rarely prosecuted. So you don't even get that in a court of law, let yeah. alone if you know the person, would you ever get an answer from them? So there really is a sense of, um, of no closure with something like this. Yeah. You know, I, in my mind, understand why you wrote this book kind of with the roles reversed, men being sexually assaulted by a woman. But I'm sure there will be some people who see this book or hear about it and say, well, why didn't you write a book about what women experience from the minds of women? Why didn't you, like, this is a moment in which women's stories need to be heard. And even if it's fiction, even it, why not let women be the ones that experience this in the book? Because that's every day of my life. Mm. And that is every single day Mm. of every woman's life that I've ever known from Mm. my mother to my sister, you know, probably to my daughter someday if I'm being real. That's the reality. You know, that's the reality of the world. And we we really need to go deeply in and hold space for different ways of thinking and communicating story and and to tell all of the stories 
And if we're going to talk about inclusion, and if inclusion and equality of the body matters, then in- inclusion and equality of the story must matter as well. Yeah. How did you prepare to write as men? Did you consult men? Did you talk with men that have been through some of these personal experiences? Did you, I mean, like, how'd you get your head in there? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Well, there's two two things. I think I started writing this book three and a half years ago. So, so before me too. Oh, yeah, way before. Okay, okay. Um, but I think it's been... It's been in the hive mind, hmm. you know, this kind this kind of story, this kind of perspective has is out there. I, I've felt it lingering um, in many different ways. But for me, um, I, I feel like as a woman, I've had to I've, I've had to live and understand what men need and desire and want and how they work and how they live mm. um, and how they operate and their rules and their laws and their types of wars. Mm. That has been the experience of every woman you will ever know. And so to me, I, I feel like I was primed a little bit already. To, you were already to, living in the mind of men. Yeah. I mean, we. that's, that's kind of that's the endemic experience of a uh. woman, but that's not to be um, to say that 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 that's all that I did. I I definitely I would say my husband David Cross was instrumental in giving me the very first set of notes on the book um, and giving me some ideas that the, that just the reason that this book I think is so strong as far as the male perspective and the truth. Um, is because of him and because he was really able to help me layer in some some pieces that I was missing, some ways in which perhaps I wasn't seeing. And so that was a real gift for me as a writer, um, that and a few other friends of mine who were men, um, a few of whom, uh, after they read it, came out to me and told me that they had been sexually assaulted oh by, by women. Yes. What did you do in those moments when these men that you came to with your draft of this book said, actually, it's real and it happened to me? What do you say in that moment? I mean, they're 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 all they're both very different. So you know, I would just talk to them about it. One, I just um, got, had a shot of bourbon with. Mm. That was our way of sort of processing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, and the and the other one, we just talked it through. We we talked about it, and I think that for the men who have experienced this, it's a it's a it's a reality, and it's. Um, it's a taboo that hasn't really been able to be touched yeah. in a certain way. Um, and so, you know, I hope that that also brings about that other conversation, which really hasn't been taking place. What for you is the biggest difference in the way men have talked to you about sexual assault? They've um, gone through and women have talked about that. When right, that's gone a really it. good question. Um, it, it's really it's hard to say because I've only spoken to two men about mm-hmm, it, and mm-hmm. I've probably pro- there's probably not a conversation with any woman I've ever had that doesn't involve that of some nature. Uh. So in the hundreds, uh. um, and certainly around this, you know, the Me Too movement and everything that's been happening in the last year, there's been a lot more stories that have come up. Um, yeah, uh, friends of mine and family, and I think that was one of the scariest, most difficult parts of the Me Too movement breaking open was suddenly finding out that your mother had been sexually assaulted yeah. or someone you never, you know, you you'd never thought of, maybe a girlfriend or a daughter. It's more normal for women the experience, and so they speak about it. Um, slightly easier hmm. uh, and they're able to um, 
to really communicate the clarity of their experiences, um, I think because it is so common and because usually if you're going to express it, you know, the woman you're sitting across from who you're expressing it to also went through something similar. Mm -hmm. So there's a camaraderie a Mm -hmm. little bit there. All right, time for a break. When we come back, Amber Tamblin talks about her own Me Too experience and how she deals with her privilege in this work. BRB. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. In 1980, with a few thousand dollars and used dairy equipment, Ken Grossman founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken's award-winning ales propelled him from home brewer to craft brewer. Today, Ken and his family still own 100% of the company, one of the most successful independent craft breweries in America. More at SierraNevada.com. Hey, Asma. Hey, Scott. Another crazy week. We've got North Korea. Yep, we got Russia. Midterms. And, of course, President Trump. And what happens whenever there is crazy news that erupts? We pop into the studio and break it down to make sense. So if you see a headline... We've discussed it. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. Did Me Too happen or start to happen before or after you finished the writing of this book? It happened... um, after the first draft. So hmm. after the first draft was, was finished, um, uh, I had, I, I remembered I'd written a letter, um, I'd written an op-ed in the New York Times called I'm Done With Not Being Believed. Yeah. Um, which was just, you know, talking about being a woman and, and the idea that the first response after you tell a story of assault or harassment is to be questioned. And so um, when I finished the draft, that that letter, um, that op-ed I had published, and then almost two months later, I think, the Harvey Weinstein story broke, and it just was everything was like a flood. So that's what Mm. I mean about it being in the zeitgeist. Um, Even me writing that piece before the Jodi Cantor story came out, uh, it was because everyone was feeling it. Um, It was was in the air. Gotcha. And we should just clarify uh, briefly what that op-ed was about. It was about a few things. It was about an interaction uh, with the actor James Woods uh, and some other stuff. Yeah. So basically, uh, there was uh, just a thing that had happened on Twitter where I mentioned that actor uh, picking me up once when I was attempting to pick me up when I was 17, and he denied it and called me a liar. And my response was to write this op-ed for The Times, essentially saying, I'm done with not being believed and I'm not asking anymore to be believed. Yeah. You know, this is the this is the new stance and women are going to be telling their stories and you're not going to stop us. So yeah. was, to me, it was a real sort of um, battle cry, that piece. Yeah. Um, and and it, it all came about because James Woods was criticizing Army Hammer, who you worked with before. Oh, I forgot about that part. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So James Woods was critiquing Army Hammer for being in the movie Call Me By Your Name because that depicted a relationship between a 17-year-old boy yeah. and a 24-year-old man. And... Army responded and and called him a hypocrite. And I, I didn't really – I don't know anything about James Woods. And he apparently has a history with dating young girls hmm. and young women. And so Army said that to him. And then I happened to see Army's tweet and, <laughs> and a memory was triggered. Yeah. Um, and I checked with my dad. I checked with my girlfriend that was with me when we when that happened. Yeah. And just to be like, am I crazy? 
Um, and they said, oh, yeah, I remember that. And my wow. dad remembered me coming home and telling him after it had happened wow. when I was 17. And apparently, and, and so you and your friend were at some diner in L.A. And mm-hmm. James Woods just sees y'all and says, do you want to come to Vegas with me? Yeah, he had, there was like, you know, he, he gave his little, his little, uh, presentation his little dance of why we should go and then oh when God. i told him i was seven we were 17 he said even better jesus so that was the part <laughs> and then of course you say this happened and he denies it all again and it's yeah, how does that, that feel that must be frustrating you know it wasn't frustrating it lit a fire in me mm. and you know in the age in the world of donald trump um i think that there really is this sense of uh, being furious when uh, when somebody doesn't believe you over a story like that and tries to publicly um, shame you and call you a liar. And so um, James just messed with the wrong one. <laughs> okay. That's just what it is. Okay. He just messed with the wrong one. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, he's retired now. That's what I heard. <laughs> <laughs> what, about, what about victims of sexual assault who either don't want to be the wrong one, don't have the means to be the wrong one, don't mm. have the job or financial security to be the wrong one. Mm-hmm. You know, and you've spoken about this before. You're you are a, you're a woman of privilege. Mhm. How do you grapple with that? Well, I don't know if I grapple, but the reason that propelled me to write that piece and to speak out and to call him out publicly was for that exact reason. Mm. Writing that piece was not about my experience. Like I talk in the beginning of it about some experiences I had growing up in the entertainment business. But but there's a macro conversation happening within that article and with anything that I write that is always about the larger picture, is always about the people who are voiceless. Um, for instance, in Any Man in this novel, there's a pretty upsetting – to me, the most upsetting part of the book is a trans character who's the only one – in the entire book, the only man whose who's narrative you don't hear out mm-hmm. of his own mouth. It is taken from him immediately. Mm. It is told through social media. It is told through every different type of personality and person. Mm-hmm. There's an ownership over uh, his experience that is ungodly and cruel. And I think some of the worst that this country has to offer. And I think that that is a – I've heard that is the common experience of, of any trans person. And hmm. so for me, showing that, showing it and letting it, you know, letting it be as awful as it is in the literal experience of our world is so much more important than um, painting a pretty picture. Yeah. I am actually pulling up that chapter now. This chapter yeah. is entirely composed of tweets. The tweets aren't real, but the names attached to the tweets are real people like Mike Cernovich and Alex Jones and Kate Hudson and Katy Perry. And it's all these tweets about one of the victims uh, of this rapist who happens to be trans. And Mm -hmm. before they even get into the nuts and bolts of this person's story, there is this immediate judgment, whether this person is right or wrong or guilty or innocent because they're trans. That's exactly right. There's a full onslaught of a character assassination um, rooted in in deep, deep, deep uh, bigotry. Um, that you and I probably see, you know, we see it. You see it on on social media. Oh, yeah. You see it all the time. And 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 you 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 set up a really interesting critique of the way that Twitter and social media and the news media can really 
bring out the worst when it comes to dealing with sexual assault as an issue facing the culture. I mean, there are, besides that great chapter full of just tweets, there is this uh, fictitious, newsy, chatty talk show in the book called The Hope Show, which I find quite ironic. I love that. (laughs) Uh, And The Hope Show's the whole pitch is, quote, covering all of America's horrific stories of injustice. Yeah. And it's just kind of disaster, torture, tragedy porn. And, That's right. And it plays into America's weird appetite and, the, uh, and American news media's weird appetite to play up stories of tragedy, like tragedy. Yeah, and glamorize you, pain. Yeah. That's what we do. What is the fix for that? Well, I think that we need to all hold our divisions accountable better. Mm. Mm. And I know that that's that's the work of everyone together, just in the same way that I, on a daily basis, look across and I'm constantly trying to hold my other white feminist girlfriends accountable and help them to see and help them to not get defensive off the bat and to see that, you know, feminism is much larger than just what they're feeling and thinking. Um, You know, that's something that takes years and years to restructure out of somebody's brain. And I think that that in a parallel world, that is true of of the news cycles. Mm -hmm. That is true of us on social media before we hit that retweet or quote retweet Mm -hmm. of some drastic thing we're going to say. We don't pause to think about how we could be harming somebody else. Yeah. There's this paragraph uh, towards the end of the book that hit me like a truck. Uh, One of the characters in the book, Donald Ellis, he writes a piece for this paper in the novel, and he talks a bit about the media, and he says, quote, let me be emphatically clear. They don't care about us. People who live through sexual assault are a crash on the side of the road, in the American media is nothing more than cars slowing down just long enough to take a peek, just long enough to take a picture before speeding off to their next fatality. We are a country that capitalizes on the fetishizing of felonies. Yeah. That's real. That is real. And it is a fetish. As real as that critique of the American news media is, and as valid as I think it is, as someone who's in the media, you also can't be an activist on the issues you care about without engaging that same media. (laughs) And you're engaging with that media right now, talking to me, right? Uh, How do you navigate that dance with the devil? (laughs) It's a dance with the devil. Right? It's a good question. It is. But I think that it's, um, I think it's just important, again, to keep coming back to naming the problem. Even in the course of this interview, we've named several problems that we've both been a part of, that we've both been complicit in in our own ways. Yeah. Um, and that's what's true. And that's what's right about, I think, the work being done. And, you know, we have to remember that the Me Too movement, the actual literal Me Too movement, you know, started a long time ago from Tarana Burke. But this iteration of it was born on social media. Yeah. And the news... And, and everyone else had nothing to do with it. Mm. They amplified it, but it began when women just turned and started speaking into that giant hive mind we've been talking about. So this is like one of the examples of the positive nature of social media and of Twitter is that it didn't belong to anybody other than the women and some of the men. 
and the trans communities who were telling the stories and saying, this is real and no one owns it. And I don't have to like give an interview to have a platform. I don't have to be special. I actually don't have to be Mm. one of the affluent, rich celebrity white women that have been primarily interviewed about Harvey Weinstein or, Mm. you know, pick somebody else. I don't have to. Yeah. That doesn't matter. I can just go out and say it and there will be a consequence. That person, their boss will be watching. The yeah. whole world is watching. Yeah. And to me, that is just uh, absolutely profound. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I was finishing up your book the other day, and I was at a coffee shop on the east side of L.A., um, <laughs> somewhere in Frogtown. But I was sitting outside reading the book, and these two dudes come up to the coffee shop. They both came up on bikes. They both were in full spandex. One was probably in his <laughs> 40s. One was, I'm, like, I'm like in his 50s. They get their coffee. They sit down outside not too far from me, and I swear this is a true story, Amber. I hear one of them say out the corner of my ear, he says, well, I mean, just look at what happened to Aziz Ansari. And I was like, what? So I stopped reading your book for a second, and I totally eavesdrop. And they go on and on to talk about how, like, in their understanding of it, Me Too has gone too far. And then Mm -hmm. before they get back on their bikes in their full spandex, the other one says, and I mean, now they're even coming for Morgan Freeman. I swear (laughs) to you. I swear to you. And so I guess. That's literally going to be the name of my next um, feminist (laughs) nonfiction book of essays. Now they're even coming for Morgan Freeman. (laughs) But, like, there are probably a lot of Americans who think of themselves as fair and kind and tolerant and respectful of women who were saying, you know what? Too far. What do you say when you encounter those kind of men or women in your life? Those are some hard conversations, and I encounter them often. Um, One of the most disappointing things is some of the most liberal men I know really view the othering and experience of women as a form of identity politics, which Hmm. is a term they hate. And to which I say everyone has an identity, the left and the right, and everyone does identity politics. Like it's, it's, we all have identities. But in the, in the arming of that term, in the arming of it and, and making it seem as though it doesn't matter or that it's actually not something that physically, literally harms people's lives, um, it's just interesting to me that that some of the hardest people to get through to are those that that are on our side. And I again, I think it just, you know, this is a very dizzying, confusing time because we've taken something that has been the the structure of how men and women have talked to each other, treated each other um, since the beginning of time, and we've ceased it. And it also, cha- I mean, like, it changes the very biology and science of human interaction because for yeah. so long it's been this way. To me, it's tantamount to saying to everyone, I know for thousands of years we've all drunk water and breathed air. Yeah. Let's change it up. Now we're going to drink air and breathe water. Like, it's that monumental. It's so funny. I was um, uh, the actress Blake Lively, who's like yeah. my little sister. We oh. did a bunch of movies together. And, uh, her husband is the actor Ryan Reynolds, and he um, he said to me once, the most profoundly, I think he was the most clear-headed of any man that I've spoken to uh, about all of this over the last year. And he hmm. said, oh, yeah, this all makes so much sense to me. And it just seems so obvious that women want us to just sit down and shut up for a little <laughs> while. Yeah. And you guys are going to figure out what you need. 
what you want going forward. And then when you know, you're going to come tell us and we're going to get on board with it. And that's how this is going to go down. Huh. And I was like, Ryan. Easier said than done. <laughs> yeah. I know, but he got it, you yeah. know? Was there or has there been a moment in this Me Too moment where you said to yourself, that's too much? Wow. No one's ever asked me that ever. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to think. I don't think so. Um, I will say that the Aziz story really broke my heart because mm. I knew what the writer was trying to do by exposing that story and, and writing it. And the harm that I think it did was only in the sense that we as a country were not yet able to talk about the gray areas of these conversations. Mm-hmm. And some of those gray areas involve things like uh, coercion. Mm-hmm. And that that is also the other problem that we're we don't even know how we're going to address that yet. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying Aziz didn't didn't deserve that story. I'm just saying that there was a there was a context missing to it that I wish had been uh, examined on a deeper level, and that was the context of coercion and what that means again, not just in that particular story with that woman, but on a larger macro level with with women who are not in positions of power being coerced by men who are. Yeah. What do you think should happen to Aziz? I've thought about that a lot because I love his work. Yeah. Uh, and I read the article and said, well, damn, because there is so much gray area left on the page there. It, well, the, it, fact like, of the, the fact of the matter is, is nothing has happened to Aziz. So He's been laying low for a little bit. Yeah, but come on. That's not – that's nothing. Yeah. Meaning – there is not real impact there. Um, and I try not to really think about the feelings and the redemptions of these men right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. It's in the background of my mind. And mm-hmm. anytime someone brings it up, um, you know, the redemption aspect of it and, well, what's going to happen? Is their whole legacy going to be destroyed and disappear? It's like, you know, that's really not my work to mm. do. Mm. That's for them to do. If they feel like, you know, the world has shut them out and shut their legacy out and their voice out, then that's their work to do, um, to figure out how they can be part of this conversation and come back to the table. And that doesn't mean going and sulking and just, you know, meeting with your publicist who's going to tell you to stay quiet for six months or however long. It's like, what's the work you're really doing? Are you doing it or are you not doing it? Do you feel like you're the victim of this? Or do you see how you helped perpetuate this? Um, I think that that's for each of those men to figure out. And if they don't figure it out and they come back, you know, they're going to get sniffed out again. It's just you're going to see it. You're going to feel it. And I think there'll be more problems in the long run, which saddens me. But my hope is that, you know, there are good, strong people behind those guys and that they are helping them see, helping them get therapy and and work and to really see how um, how that they are not just the victims of this movement. Mm. Yeah. All right, time for another break right here. After this, Amber talks with me about whether Me Too has gone too far. She also talks about her relationship with her husband, David Cross, who had his own Me Too moment recently. She tells me about how the two of them handled it together. All right, BRB. <laughs> Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Wix.com, a web platform for creating your own professional website. With Wix, whether it's your first time creating a website or you're a longtime pro, you can do it yourself. 
Choose from hundreds of stunning templates or start from scratch. With the drag and drop technology and powerful web features, join over 125 million people already using Wix to create their own websites. Go to wix.com to create yours today. So what will you create? Would you put on a sweater that once belonged to Hitler? Can Chinese zodiac signs predict who's going to be a great scientist? And what happens when you use a training method for dogs to teach doctors? Answers to all those questions on my podcast, Hidden Brain. I don't want to, and I wanted to be careful in how I brought it up, because I don't think it's fair to make conversations with women about the men in their lives. Mm -hmm. But there are two men that have been in the news with you because of two. their relationship. There's two. Who's the other one? The both Quentin Tarantino. Oh, Quentin. Yeah. <laughs> Quentin. Can, can we talk about Quentin <sighs> for a second? I'm, I wish you could see how hard I'm rolling my eyes I right know. now. <laughs> and, I, and, and, and my goal is to never make someone roll their eyes. But I do think that you can uh, share some nuggets, share some wisdom with people, with women that are trying to engage in conversations with men that want to help. So the backstory yeah. first, you know, after Me Too was a thing, um, you had a dinner with Quentin Tarantino, who has been involved career-wise with Harvey Weinstein for a long time. For his whole career. For his whole yeah. career. And you basically said, we need to talk about how you may have been complicit without even knowing it. I mean, are there some nuggets from that conversation and how you tackled that that could be of some advice to listeners? A lot of what I what I said to Quentin is exactly that and helping him see. Um, I think what's really unfortunate for a lot of men from that generation and even older um, is that they really, they always just assumed that the rumors they heard about, oh, he likes to pat women on the butt or maybe he sticks his hand up their dress or, you know, if somebody was engaging in oral sex, then how could it be rape? I didn't realize it went that far. Um, and I think for a lot of them, that's been the experience is that they don't realize how systemic of a problem it is until you point it out to them. Um, you know, and I think it, it was it was saying that to Quentin and also, um, you know, his people were mad at him because he was quiet and he didn't say anything for like a week. Mm -hmm. um, and I was never mad at him for that. He people what some people don't understand behind the the lens was, you know, behind the story of that was um, was just that Quentin grew up without a father figure in a lot of ways. And I won't go into that because that's his personal mm -hmm. story. And and Harvey was a father figure to him. And I think that when something like this happens and you're so angry at yourself for letting it happen in a certain way, in the way that Quentin was, um, you need a second. You just need a second. You can't just put out a statement. If you put out a statement immediately, that's a little um, telling. Yeah. And like, what are you trying fake. to cover up? What yeah, are you it's trying just to like, hide? well, are do you? Did this really affect you? And Quentin is, as most men in my life are, extremely sensitive and extremely um, uh, introspective. And when they are in pain, they go in and they go quiet. And for mm. him, he needed to do that until he could come out and speak. And, you know, subsequently all this stuff came out uh, with Uma Thurman. And, you know, look, it's all it's all kind of heartbreaking at a certain level. And you realize that even the men you, 
you love so nearly and dearly who are close to you are incredibly flawed. Yeah. And and I think the most important thing that we can do that we have to do, even though we don't want to, um, even though we didn't ask for this job of being teachers, is to teach because we know how to do it. And if we want the change that we're talking about, then we have to facilitate the change. Yeah. You know, it's interesting hearing you say this because I think a lot of folks would say women deal with enough. They, they shouldn't do. also have to be the teachers for these men that don't so get it. Ali, Ali Wong says that. We have suffered enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I think of the parallels I have. Like, every few weeks, a good-hearted white listener writes in and they want me to explain race to them. Yeah. And I'm like, I got a full-time job. <laughs> and, and, and you have Google. And I'm dealing with my own stuff. And I don't want to have to be a teacher on top of having to deal with, like, yeah. I don't know, systemic oppression. Yeah. Do you ever have a day where you're like, no, dude, you go figure it out? All the time. Oh. Um, yeah. Yeah. All, all the time. And I think an aside to that is that I've always called myself a feminist. And I don't think I knew how to be a feminist hmm. until I really started listening to my black girlfriends, my black friends, hmm. female friends. And the experience, pretty much everything I've ever been taught is from them. And... That makes me really sad to say that because I know what that feels like, what that's felt like for them to have to teach another white girl X, Y, Z. Have they ever sat you down and said, I'm tired, I'm going to teach you this stuff? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, one of my best, closest friends said, I don't want to be your white whisperer anymore. Oy. Mm-hmm. And that hurt. And it. And I needed to hear it. I really needed to hear How it. How did you react? Uh, I, I accepted it and I agreed. And um, and that was that. Um you know, and I and I always keep that sort of in the back of my mind of like, I wouldn't be in the position I'm in, literally, if black women didn't teach me. And even though that was painful, difficult, unfair to them, that's where I sit. And so my power and my hope is in being able to share the beauty and the wisdom yeah. that has been gifted to me. Yeah. I want you to tell me and my listeners now one of those black women whose work we should seek out, who should be amplified. Oh, gosh. If you're comfortable with it. Oh, of course. Um, I mean, whether or not I've had these types of conversations with them, I'm going to just name a couple people's work who I love. Yeah. Um, the poet Patricia Smith um, is extraordinary. Obviously, Roxane Gay. I think yeah. everything she's doing right now is... Uh, so, so incredibly important. I think... And she's um, spoken highly of you. I think she she yeah. talked about you uh, for BuzzFeed recently. Yeah, she did. She did. Uh, Morgan Parker, a phenomenal poet. Okay. Uh, Randa Girard, phenomenal writer, mm-hmm. memoirist, um, uh, fiction writer. There's, there's, boy, I could give you a list a mile long, but oh, that's, those are the ones off the top start. of my head. That's a good yeah. start. In that thread and that theme of, you know, having conversations with, men or white people that want to help but aren't there yet, uh-huh. you have spoken about um, a man in your life who might not be all the way there yet but is trying. I am talking about your husband, David mm-hmm. Cross. Are you comfortable speaking a bit about uh, him and, 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 and some conversations that have been had about um, some allegations of some off-color comments from a few years ago and how you yeah, handled that. Yeah, you know, I think basically he was um, rightfully accused of doing something racist to the comedian Charlene Yee. Um, you know, I think that jokes that work for white guys and their white guy comedian friends 
um, don't work always for women of color. Yeah. Um, and I think that that believe me, his eyes are open to that now if they weren't before. And this is what it took yeah. to have that change. Yeah. Some men don't change. The thing I can say about David that I love so much about him is that he changes. And part of his um, introspection and his his sensitivity is that he's aware of that. Um, and I think same thing goes for uh, the, you know, talking over Jessica Walters um, incident that happened recently, the Arrested Development press tour. Yeah. Um, I think it was a similar experience where, um, you know, it's just a continual sense of getting them to open their eyes yeah. and getting them to see um, either how they're helping or they're not helping. Exactly. Did you guys talk about that moment? And if so, what did he say? What did you I say mean, to him? I mean, what do you think? I'm you guessing think we, we talked about it. Do you think I talked to my husband about that moment? <laughs> Were you like, listen up, David, let me tell you something. If you ever, or like, how, did, how do you navigate that conversation? Because you love this man, but you know we messed up. Yeah, I, I just, I helped him to see. I, that's the best thing that you could do. And, um, you know, that was really difficult for our family. We got death threats. Um, really? Oh, yeah. It was awful. And women were coming after me and telling me, oh, you can't be the head of a movement and not speak to this. Um, and I just, you know, I really, really hold a strong boundary with this and believe I've earned the right to privacy. Yes. And if you care about my voice and what I have to say at all, then and you think you know me, then you better assume that I'm having really difficult conversations with my husband about it, just like all women are. Yeah. Well, and this is a thing that I think is lacking often in the tenor of our conversation about these issues, especially online. Mm -hmm. We forget that everyone messes up. Everyone at some point along their path will disappoint you. And that's just humanity. That's that is just humanity. life. That's also the reality for, for us wives. Yeah. You know, to still stay in, stay in a marriage and still be in love with someone and to go like, this is tough. This is really going to be tough for us. And I believe in the other side. I think that's the most important part. Yeah. And people can contain multitudes. Like people, yeah. like people can be good and bad at the same time. You know, like that is how life works, you know. Yeah. Last thing, and I'll let you go, I promise. You have said before, and I believe this statement fully, that women should not be held responsible for the actions of their partners. Mm -hmm. And I believe that. Um, but, you know, after that incident came to light of David and uh, the Asian American comic, you went to talk to her. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that you were in a way having to unfairly carry his water? No, because it wasn't about him. Mm. That me talking to her was not about him. Mm. And I know Charlene. Um, that wasn't about her. That was about me checking in on her and making sure she was okay. Um, yeah. I knew my husband was in hell. He wasn't sleeping. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't know, but my husband is also um, suffers from depression and anxiety pretty severely. Um, and so while I worried for him and his mental health through that experience, um, I also worried about Charlene because I know that that wasn't easy. Oh, yeah. And even she said, like, I've said this in public before and no one paid attention. And now that this happened, it, it, it became so huge. And the truth of the matter is, and he, if he was sitting here right now, he would tell you, I didn't do myself any favors in the way I handled it. Huh. You know, he jumped, he jumped so quickly to defense and gave this kind of like half-assed apology. Mm. He knows all that. He knows, 
he's well aware that he handled it really, really poorly and probably created more injury uh, than not. And that's his work to do. Yeah. I really am so grateful to you for all of your time because I definitely kept you over schedule. And no, I appreciate this is such you. a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Amber Tamblyn. Thank you, Sam. Amber Tamblyn, thank you so much. You were so gracious with all my questions. As always, listeners, do not forget to share with me the best things that happened to you all week. Record yourself. Send the file to samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. We may share your message on our weekly wrap at the end of the week. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.